Mark Vrogrop wrote a book called Dark Clouds and Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament. It's a book I'd heard about some time ago, but recently uh, picked up because I'm going through and preaching through the book of Lamentations. And it's a book written about his painful journey through grief and some of the things he and his family had experienced. But one of the chapters I read this week, he talked about going to Auschwitz and Birkenau, the concentration and death camps in Poland. He described being there. He said it was the first time he really understood uh, the depth of human depravity. As he walked through their rooms, as many of you may have known, room full of shoes, rooms full of luggage, one room full of human hair, standing as a visual reminder of the atrocity committed in World War II in the Jewish Holocaust. He said in, in Birkenau, the death camp, he stepped foot inside the gas chambers and stood near the mass grave where it's believed over a million people died in these Nazi camps. He talked about suffering and the evil that's found in this world. And I thought to myself, why do museums like that exist? Even our own Holocaust Museum here in Skokie. Why do places like that exist? Well, they exist for one thing, to call people to look and see, to not look away, to look, to see it, to not ignore it, to not act like it didn't happen, to not avoid it, but to see it, to notice it, so that the hope would be that it never happens again. I think the Book of Lamentations is kind of like a, a museum of sorts, if you will. Um, it, that, at least that's what its function is today for us in a lot of ways. Uh, when we open this book, let's, we're entering to its doors. We're looking around and beholding a ruined city, uh, a slaughtered people, anguished hearts. It happened over 2,500 years ago, but yet this book is still relevant today. It's remembered today. In fact, if you were to go to the Wailing Wall in the old city of Jerusalem, you'd find people there praying at the Wailing Wall, and some of them would probably be quoting poems from the book of Lamentations. And so, last week we began this study through the book of Lamentations. And if you're new to Living Hope Church, we usually go verse by verse through books of the Bible. and We alternate between uh, New Testament and Old Testament. We just finished the book of Acts, and now we're spending uh, the next four weeks, including today, going through the book of Lamentations. It's a book that most people are not familiar with. It's a book that is avoided, um, especially by Christians living in America. It doesn't match uh, the kind of uh, upbeat, energetic, positive message that we kind of want uh, to focus on. But as I've thought about it, there's really never a time in which it would be unuseful to preach through the book of Lamentations. Uh, because 
there's always hurting and suffering hearts in churches. And so the book of Lamentations speaks directly to us even today. Now, the context, the book of Lamentations was written out of not just a general kind of sorrow over the world and and just, you know, kind of a general, you know, uh, lament about the world. It was written specifically about Jerusalem being destroyed. It has a very historical context. It's 586 B.C., so that's almost 600 years before the birth of Jesus, that the city of Jerusalem, after a year and a half, of being besieged by the Babylonians. They break, they break forth into the city, uh, burn it, destroy it. Uh, those who are not killed are exiled. And the book of Lamentations is written in the aftermath of that. It's written as a poetic lament of all the pain endured by those people. And in fact, every year, usually either in late July or early August, during the holiday of the Tishbeth, is the holy day of fasting in modern Judaism, where it's commemorating two times in which Jerusalem was destroyed, and specifically the temple was destroyed. So this one was the first in 586 B.C., the second was in A.D. 70. And so on that day, every year, Jewish people will gather in their synagogues and read portions of the book of Lamentations. Well, today we're going to read Lamentations chapter 1. There's each five separate poems that we find here in the book. And today we're going to begin with with chapter 1. And I'm not going to read all of the chapter right now, but I want to read just a few verses to begin with. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. How? And by the way, that's kind of the title of the book. There isn't, um, most Old Testament books of the Bible don't have a heading that says, this is the book of Lamentations, or this is uh, the whatever. It, usually, that is, you know, attributed to it later. Most people would say that the title of this book is, why? Or how? Like an exclamation um, of this, 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 why is this happening? How did this happen? That's how the book starts. How does the city sit solitary that was full of people? How has she become as a widow? She that was great among the nations and princess among the provinces. How is she become tributary or a slave? She weepeth sore in the night. Her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They're become her enemies. Judah is gone into captivity because of affliction, because of great servitude. She dwelleth among the heathen. She findeth no rest. All her persecutors overtook her between the straits. The ways of Zion do mourn because none come to the solemn feasts. All her gates are desolate. Her priests sigh. Her virgins are afflicted and she is in bitterness. Her adversaries are the chief. Her enemies prosper for the Lord hath afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. 
Her children are gone into captivity before the enemy. And from the daughter of Zion, all her beauty is departed. Her princes are become like hearts or deer that find no pasture. They are gone without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem, remembered in the days of her affliction and of her miseries, all her pleasant things that she had in the days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the enemy and none did help her, the adversaries saw her and did mock at her Sabbaths. Jerusalem hath grievously sinned, therefore she is removed. All that honored her despise her because they have seen her nakedness. Yea, she sigheth and turneth backward. Her filthiness is in her skirt. She remembereth not her last end. Therefore she came down wonderfully. She had no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction. For the enemy hath magnified himself. The adversary hath spread out his hand upon all her pleasant things. For she hath seen that the heathen entered into her sanctuary, whom thou didst command that they should not enter into the congregation. All her people sigh. They seek bread. They have given their pleasant things for meat to relieve the soul. See, O Lord, and consider, for I am become vile. I'll stop there for now. This first poem in the book of Lamentations, this first chapter is first what I call a poetic call to look and see. To look and see. That's what you see in verse 9. O Lord, behold my affliction. You see it again at the end of verse 11. O Lord, O see, O Lord, and consider, for I am become vile. You see it again in verse 20. Behold, or look, O Lord, for I am in distress. Jeremiah, I believe, is the author of this lamentation. And he's calling for people to look and to see. And he's specifically calling for people to look at this. To look and see that the path of sin has left the city of Jerusalem in ruins and utterly devastated. He's saying this very simply. Don't miss this. He's saying, look and see. Look and see how sin destroys. Look and see what our sin has done. And Lamentations 1 calls for us today to look down the path of sin and to see how sin leaves us utterly devastated. So I have two points today because I think this poem is in two sections. The first 11 verses and then the last 11 verses. And there's like a kind of a a clear break in in the middle of verse 11 where you know there's kind of a a shift there. So we're going to look at two things and we're going to see what does the ancient city of Jerusalem's destruction, when we see that, when we look at this in this passage, what does it tell us to look at? What are we to be seeing? What are we to be looking at? And I think through this poem... Jeremiah paints two portraits for us that he wants us to see. The first is a a weeping widow. And the second is someone who is disregarded, ignored while they're in despair. Those two pictures. A widow who's weeping and someone who is in despair and they're being completely disregarded. Look 
and see, Jeremiah says. These two pictures, and it will help us to understand what this message is for us. So I want you to see, first of all, the weeping widow. That Jeremiah begins this poem from the point of view of a, of a weeping widow. POV. Right? A lot of teenagers use that today. Right? It's all over the place for us old heads to try to figure out what they mean when they say POV, POV, POV. It's point of view, from the point of view of this person or that person. And, and well, the POV here for Lamentations 1 is a widow, a widow who's weeping. Now, not, not a literal widow. He's, I don't think he's actually literally watching and describing something that happened, although there were certainly many many widows as a result of what happened in Jerusalem. But he wants you to hear it through the voice of a widow. In fact, he's saying that Jerusalem, the city, is being personified now as a widow. In other words, he says the city of Jerusalem or the citizens of Jerusalem, the people of Jerusalem, they are like a widow. Once someone with a full family of people a city full of activity, bustling with noise and excitement, is now alone, solitary, and as a slave. He goes on to say that Jerusalem, this widow, weeps but has no one to comfort her. She's had many lovers in the past, but none of those lovers remain any longer. In fact, they have betrayed her. She used to have lots of friends, but now all of her friends, he says in verse 2, have become her enemies. This widow is a slave. She's been taken from her home and sent out into the nations. Verse 4, he says, this city was once full of festivals and feasts, special holidays that would be commemorated where the temple would be the hub of the city where people were coming to offer their sacrifices, but now it's, des it's deserted. Verse 5, he says that Jerusalem used to be the chief of all cities. It used to be the leading and prized city. Verse 6, he says her beauty is gone. It's not the pretty, glamorous, splendid city that it used to be. Perhaps you could picture New York City on the afternoon of 9-11. I don't know if you've ever seen, there's a really fascinating documentary. It's called 9-10. It's about the day before 9-11. They interview people, some of them who went up the towers the night before. They interview a guy who worked at the restaurant who was supposed to be there the next morning, but he couldn't because he had to stay late and overslept. They interview all these different people, and they have people that were taking pictures and videos of it, and, and you see the city, you see it in the daytime and the Twin Towers, you see it at night and all the lights, and then, and then you see the next day, and it's completely different. You see all the smoke, you see the destroyed buildings. It wasn't the beautiful, majestic city that it was even 24 hours before that. And that's what verse 6 is saying here, that, that, that Jerusalem, the city, used to be the beauty, the prize, but no longer... Notice verse 7. Jerusalem remembered in the days of her affliction 
her misery, all her pleasant things that she had in the days of old. You see what's saying there? That all that's left for Jerusalem are the painful memories of the past. And now, the poverty of the present. The last part of verse 6, there's this illustration of, of a deer that's going around to try to find pasture to feed on, but there's, there's no food. There, there's, the land has been completely destroyed and burned. There's nowhere to eat. This once honored and desirable city. Look what he says in verse 8 about this city. It's a very graphic description, but it says, Jerusalem has grievously sinned, therefore she's removed all that honor honored her, now despise her, because they have seen her nakedness. Yea, she sigheth and turneth backward. Her filthiness is in her skirts. She remembereth not her last end. The once beautiful, honorable, desirable city is now become like a filthy harlot whose nakedness has been exposed for all to see, and she runs away in shame. Verse 10 talks about the, the temple. Now, you and I, we don't really connect with this as well because this is a building for us, and we care about this building. We don't want to see anything happen to it, but if this building burned down tomorrow, we would be sad, we would miss it, but we could find another place to meet. Well, the temple, there was no more important structure than that. It was not just sacred. It was not just the place that they worshipped. It was literally the place that God established where He would meet with them. It was the central part of their existence was the temple. And in verse 10, he goes on to describe that their adversaries have come into the temple. They put their hands on her sacred objects in the temple. They've entered into the sanctuary, the forbidden place where no foreigner was allowed to go to. In fact, they are entering to places where just normal, common Jewish followers of Yahweh were not allowed to enter, where only the priests were allowed to go. But yet their enemies have entered into the holiest of the holiest place and have taken their sacred objects. Now, those just sound like, well, they can, you know, that's not a big deal. Well, you and I must understand, and you remember when God was describing to Moses the building of the tabernacle. They have the, the candelabra of gold, the, the, the brazen altar, the table of showbread. They have all of these, and they weren't just you know, family relics that we want to keep from the past. These were all not just symbols to them, but these were important sacred objects where God himself met with their priests in there where they would make their offerings to the Lord and where the Lord would respond and bless His people. Now, it's all been taken. And again, in verse 11, we see this graphic picture that people are selling anything valuable that they have just to get some relief to have something to eat. Can you imagine? And it's all this is from the voice the personified voice of a weeping, lonely widow. And that is a very appropriate description here because you think of this destroyed city, it's now alone, it's deserted, it's destitute, it's afflicted. 
And this poem is designed to show how different Jerusalem's condition is compared to what her glorious past was. Jerusalem was the place where King David reigned on his throne. Jerusalem was the Washington, D.C. of the world. It was the capital of power, military, politically, the influence of the world in the days of David and Solomon. And now it's rubble. And again, the first word of this chapter is how. How did Jerusalem get to this point? What led to her being alone? Well, the simple answer is her sin and the righteous punishment of a holy God. In the mid-1800s, there was a British man whose name was Austin Laird. And he made a monumental discovery over the course of a number of years while excavating the ancient city of Nineveh, which is in present-day Iraq. He discovered what's known as the Lachish Reliefs. Can you put up those, uh, the first picture up on the screen? Now, the Lachish Reliefs, this is from really about 2,600 years ago. Now, this has been uh, cleaned up. It's been digitalized and enhanced, but this is actually an engraving from the 8th century B.C., from the Assyrians. There was a king, you can read about him in the Bible, his name is Sennacherib. You can read about him in 2 Kings 18 and 19, Isaiah 36, 2 Chronicles 32. He was the Assyrian king, and he has led his army to a military conquest over cities in Judah. One of those cities was the Judean city of Lachish. And these ancient engravings that are called reliefs were crafted and designed for him to be put in his palace. Now, it's really interesting. When Austin discovered these in the mid-1800s, this was no small... Small little picture. I mean, these things went, um, I think they were like 8 feet high and 80 feet wide all around his palace. And they had different pictures, if I could step up here, basically like a, a movie that we would watch today. You know, they didn't have YouTube. Hey, guys, watch this, how we defeated this city. So they would portray it kind of scene by scene. And by the way, you and I tend to have what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. You know what chronological snobbery is? Chronological snobbery is we look at everyone from the ancient past as, you know, like they're just like, you know, they, they have clueless, they don't know how to do anything. Like no one knew how to draw before, you know, the 20th century, right? And when you look at some of these engravings, you see the sophistication and the artwork and the detail uh, of these people. And they didn't have like a, hey, look that up for me on Google so I can, you know, trace it, right? Well, this is a, a graphic picture. You have a, a mom and another mom, tiny baby, a small child, probably dad who's carrying a heavy load on his shoulders. What, what's this picturing? It was picturing the destruction of Lachish, that Judean city, and the exile of these people. This mom riding on this camel with her two children next to her. 
was a graphic picture of the victory that the Assyrians had won over Judah. It vividly told the story of their victory. Let me show you the next one. There's one more really quickly that I'll show you. There's many, many more we could show, but I'll just show you this one. This is a, a little bit more difficult to see, but it's a picture of mostly women walking down a hill as they're being led away from their city. There are a couple men um, in the picture, but mostly women carrying something with them, probably all that they could find or take with them from their homes as they're quickly led away and out of captivity. As I look at that, I think of how there are more women than men in that. And I think about how that this personification of a weeping widow was so appropriate for Jeremiah as he uses this. I mean, these images depict true events. And again, these kind of artifacts that we have, it's called iconography. I mean, these icons, these engravings that have survived remind us that when we read the Bible, we're not reading stories that have been made up. Even when we read poetry, even when we read it poetically described, it is describing events that really happened. Real suffering. And it stands as a visual reminder of the agony and the affliction of the weeping widow city of Jerusalem. Now, now, what's this message for us? You can take that off for now. But what's the message for us? Well, here's the message for us today. And it's this timeless truth that sin leaves us alone and empty. The lonely widow, the empty streets, abandoned by former lovers, the canceled feasts and festivals, the absence of comforters. It all shouts a very clear message that if you go down that path of sin, it will rob you and leave you alone. Sin leaves us deserted and abandoned. And just think of modern day examples. Just think of the people that you know who have pursued that path of sin. And at first, that path of sin was populated with people and fun and pleasure. But after a while, when it gets really bad, they're alone. I think about the prodigal son who left his father for a good time, and he had his fun. But then he found himself empty and alone. And that's the way it is. So often with sin. But it also reminds us that sin not only leaves us alone, but sin leaves us afflicted. That we experience real pain and suffering. That sin leaves scars. Sin makes us slaves. Perhaps that describes your present reality. Maybe you feel like your sin has left you alone and empty. Has it taken relationships from you, your marriage, your kids, your friends, people that you thought were your friends but turned out to be your enemies? Has sin left some painful scars, such as the slavery of addiction, 
And I don't know how many times I've seen that. You know, to where at first, uh, taking the drugs, it's, it's fun, it's enjoyable. There's other people that you can do it with. But how many drug addicts have you and I seen who after they're addicted, and after they've done everything possible to try to get free from it, what are they often? They're often alone. They often find themselves alone, deserted, desperate, homeless, abandoned. And that's just one example. There's so many more. Lamentations tells us sin will leave you alone. Sin will often leave us, like Jeremiah described in verse 7, with just the painful memories of the past. Everything that comes into our mind is a memory of the past, and it's painful. You know, the truth is that sin has not done this to just some of us. Sin has done this to all of us. That all of us have already taken this path of sin that has left us alone and afflicted. And of course it's true that the effects of sin are more pronounced in the lives of some more than others. But that doesn't mean that any of us have been exempt. We are all this weeping widow. And Christ himself came for us. In fact, Jesus took on more loneliness and affliction than any of us have ever experienced when He took our sin and our shame on Himself to the cross to die for us. That on the cross, He felt the abandonment and affliction of sin, but not for sins that He had committed, but for sins that we had committed. And He has the scars to prove it. So if you and I find ourselves alone and afflicted because of our sin, what we do is we can look to Christ because we won't find hope anywhere except in Him. Well, quickly, lastly, we've seen the weeping widow, but I want you to see the second portrait he gives us here, and it's this disregarded despair. The POV, if you will, changes at the end of verse 11. It's no longer primarily from the point of view of a weeping widow, but it's in the first person. Look what he says in the last part of verse 11. See, O Lord, and consider, for I am become vile. He's not describing someone in the third person. One author said that Jeremiah is no longer standing outside and looking in, but he's moved inside and looking out. He's talking from the first person perspective. The city of Jerusalem, taken up by Jeremiah himself, is... Speaking. And notice the very first thing he says in verse 12. Is it nothing to you, all you that pass by? Behold and see if there any sorrow like unto my sorrow. What's happening in all this? Well, he says people are passing by and they see his suffering, but they don't. They don't do anything about it. They don't show any compassion, no pity. Even though he says he's sorrowing like no one has sorrowed. 
He says at the end of verse 12 that this affliction has actually come from the Lord. It's because of his sin, but God is the one who's bringing this affliction. He said the Lord, in verse 13, has set a trap for his feet. Verse 14, the Lord has put a yoke around his neck. And the Lord has used his enemies to trample over him. In verse 15, the Lord hath trodden underfoot all my mighty men. Verse 16, he describes his grief, his eyes are running down, flowing with tears. Verse 17 is a graphic picture of of the city reaching out their hands, but no one's there to help. No one's there to lend a comforting hand. Verse 18, the sadness of young people being taken into captivity. Virgins and young men, the last part of verse 18, are gone into exile. And again, verse 19, all those former lovers deceived me. Verse 20. The third time there's a call out to God. What we've been talking about this whole message. For God to look. For God to see in this despair. But neither God nor man is comforting Jerusalem at this moment. Verse 21. They have heard that I sigh. There's none to come for me. All my enemies have turned Uh, have heard my trouble. They are glad that thou hast done this. Thou will bring the day that thou hast called, and they shall be like unto me. Let all their wickedness come before thee. Do unto them as thou hast done unto me for all my transgressions, for my sighs are many and my heart is faint. He ends this by saying, Lord, do to my enemies what you have done to me. And this poem ends with a Sighing soul and a fainting heart. It says at the last part of verse 22, For my sighs are many and my heart is faint. You know, there are numerous times in this first poem that we just read here in Lamentations 1 that Jerusalem is described as being in search of food. There's famine. You know, that's what happens in a, a besieged city. They're cut off from resources and supplies. They don't have what they need to eat. And so people begin to starve. People begin to search for food. Rationing food until eventually people begin to waste away. It's a horrible, horrible way to die, to suffer. Look at verse 6. He says at the last part of verse 6, Our princes have become like, like deer that find no pasture. They are gone without strength before the pursuer. Can you put that third picture up? This is another of those ancient reliefs. It's a picture in the Assyrians, probably a hundred years before what we're reading about in Jerusalem. But they had this picture of these emaciated gazelle. These gazelles that have searching for food, searching for somewhere to graze, searching but famished and malnourished. Even small ones and little ones. What's this picture for? Well, it's describing famine. It's describing the malnourishment. It's describing the kind of suffering. And how amazing that that's exactly how Jeremiah describes Jerusalem. We're like hungry 
starving deer. We're like malnourished gazelles with nowhere to find pasture. Well, again, as we come to a close here, what, what are we talking about here? We're talking about a portrait of someone who's in despair and they are being disregarded. He says, how are you looking at, how are you just passing by when you see me and how do you just keep walking by? And I thought this week in my study, you know, what is our natural response to something repulsive or something hideous? Our natural response is to turn away, to not look. And we're especially prone to do that if we are somehow asked to help. And the point of this latter part of, Jerem, or of, of Lamentations 1 is that Jerusalem's sin has left her hideous and no one wants to look. No one wants to watch. No one wants to look at her. No one wants to touch her. She is disregarded in her despair. How many times did he say, no one is there to comfort me? A while back, I was watching one of my favorite shows. And in this episode, there was a middle-aged man who was being harassed at his new apartment. Some of the residents were actively attempting to make his life miserable so that he would move. At one time, he was physically attacked by another resident outside the apartment complex on the street. And there were many other residents in that apartment complex who witnessed the event, and when the police arrived, they refused to cooperate. No one would answer a question, even though it was clear they had seen exactly what would happen, what had happened. As the show went on, that episode, even the officers themselves were reluctant to help this man. Why? Well, this man was a convicted pedophile who had recently been released from prison after serving his full sentence. I say that because what I want you to know about Lamentations 1 is that, in other words, when we think about Jerusalem in this passage, we shouldn't think of it as a suffering of an innocent child that you would naturally want to show compassion on. The, peop the reason why people don't want to look at Jerusalem here is because they know that these are people who've committed gross wickedness. And no one wants to help them. No one wants to comfort them. Again and again and again in this chapter, Jeremiah says, We have rebelled. We have sinned grievously. We have transgressed. We are suffering because of what we have done. As we close, what's the message for us? Sin leaves us repulsive and rejected. Sin leaves us where we don't deserve compassion. You and I are not helpless, innocent victims. You and I are guilty rebels. 
and our evil doing and our transgressions do not invoke pity naturally. Now, you might be listening to my message so far and you say, wow, there's not a lot of positivity here. There's not a lot of hope in this first lament in the book of Lamentations. In fact, this first chapter doesn't end on an encouraging, positive note. But there is a ray of hope shining in verse 12. Look at it again as we come to a close here. Look at that first couple lines. Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Behold and see if there is any sorrow like unto my sorrow. What does that remind you of? Is it nothing to you, all that pass by? Philip Ryken points out that this verse is a clear foreshadowing of the cross. Do you remember that when Jesus was on the cross, suffering as no man had suffered, that people passed by and just kind of wagged their head? In fact, that's literally what it says, that the people passed by completely disregarding his despair. Here he is despised and rejected. His suffering meant nothing to them. And by the way, it meant nothing to you. And it meant nothing to me. Until God, by his grace, opened our eyes to see that his suffering was for our salvation. It meant nothing to us until in his grace he opened our eyes That's why when I was a kid and we would sing songs in church, I'd be bored by them. But as I got older, and even more than getting older, because sometimes getting older doesn't change anything, but as Christ changed my life, we would start singing songs like, Oh, the old rugged cross, so despised by the world, has a wondrous attraction for me, for the dear Lamb of God left His glory above to bear it to dark Calvary. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross. Hideous to the world, glorious to the redeemed. And the beauty of the gospel is that though sin has left us repulsive, rejected with no one to blame but ourselves. Nothing about us deserving compassion. Henry read it for us earlier that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That God loved us though we were completely unlovely. And Christ brought us to himself and took all the filth of our sin and shame away and placed on us the beautiful robes of his righteousness. Now, instead of looking like dirty harlots in Christ's sight, now we've been made his pure and clean and splendid and glorious, and radiant bride. Somebody say amen right there. 
I love Ephesians 5, but it says he's washed us and made us clean, and he's presenting us to the Father as his beautiful, radiant, splendid bride. That is the beauty of the gospel. Look and see. Look and see. Calls us to see the path of sin that leads us to being alone and afflicted. And the path of sin that leaves us repulsive and rejected. And with this in mind, it portrays the gospel so much more beautifully to see that even when we are alone and afflicted because of our sin and repulsive, rejected, and unworthy of God's grace, Christ still came for us. And he came for you, if you'll turn to him. Let's pray together. Father, open our eyes up to look and see. To look and see the, how sin has left us. And how that we have no one to blame but ourselves. That sin has left us alone and afflicted, repulsive and rejected. And we don't deserve for anyone to see us where we're at and to show pity on us. But you did. And you have washed us, you have made us clean. And you have made us your beautiful bride. And all the beauty that we possess is not because of what we've done, but all because of your marvelous grace and what you did, Lord Jesus, on that old rugged cross, so despised by the world, but a wondrous attraction to us. Lord, if there's anyone here today who's never had their eyes open to trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, that today... They would look and see, look and see their own sinfulness and guilt and look and see the wondrous glory of Christ and his suffering on the cross that they might be redeemed. Then, Lord, help us as we journey through this life and find ourselves despairing, lamenting, even the painful consequences of our own sin. We see here in this chapter how we can deal, even when we're at fault, even when we are guilty, how we can pour out our hearts to you and find even a glimmer of hope as we bring these to you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.